The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Later in her play, Heidi shares the following. I told my mom about my abortion recently because, well, I had to because I was going to tell all of you. She was so blasé about it. I was like, why did you freak out then? She said, I could be calm about it now that I know your life turned out okay. She wanted to know if I was angry with her, and I was like, no, because my life turned out okay. Heidi continues, I think there were two mothers in the car with me that day. There's the first mother, who was the feminist, who made me do this contest so I could go to college and end with who ended the legacy of violent men in our family by testifying against her stepfather at 15. And then there's the second mother, the mother who'd been terrorized as a child, the mother whose first memory at age three was seeing her stepfather punch her mother and thinking, oh no, this is what life is like. The mother who'd inherited centuries of belief in her own worthlessness. No, not just belief. Centuries of laws that explicitly told her she was worthless. Centuries of laws that explicitly told her she was worthless. If you have not seen this play, I highly recommend it. You can find it online. So why are we discussing the right for reproductive freedom in 2023? Because there have been and continue to be centuries of laws that explicitly tell women they are worthless and they do not have the right to decide what happens to their bodies. This is true for all who identify as a woman, whether they were designated as a female at birth or not, as well as those who are gender diverse. These laws and societal systems get even more restrictive if you add race to the equation. When race is added, then we have to consider the centuries of medical experiments and breeding done to the people of color in our society and the impact they have had on generations of women of color. Did you know that according to the Center for Disease Control, in 2021, the maternal mortality rate for black women was 69.9 deaths per 100,000 live births, 2.6 times the rate for white women. The CDC also reported the increases from 2020 to, 2020 to 2021 for all race and Hispanic origin groups were significant. Many of these deaths were preventable. However, because of the racial bias built into our healthcare system, black mothers who were suffering from high blood pressure were being sent home instead of being taken seriously. Black mothers who were feeling pain or discomfort were ignored and told they were fine. Black mothers' experiences were not valued or heard. In the resolution the congregation will be voting on during the annual meeting on June 4th, you are not only being asked to affirm the reproductive rights and the moral choices of whether or not to have children, you are also vowing, 
and this is a direct quote from the resolution, to work against anything which constrains reproductive rights, especially when the target is women, queer people, gender diverse people, people with disabilities, immigrants, indigenous populations, and people of color. To work against anything that constraints reproductive rights. This means removing the shame and judgment and stigma from any and all choices a woman can make about her reproductive journey. We need to understand all reproductive choices, whether to have children or not, or to end a pregnancy, can be equally moral. I recently learned through our Unitarian Universalist Association Side with Love campaign about the history of our clergy consultation service. The network was created the year after the Griswold case, which is what you heard a little bit of the mm, ah, ah, <coughs> about, that determined the legality of birth control for married women. It started because women were approaching their ministers and rabbis for help, and all the clergy members could offer was comfort or reassurance. They found it unacceptable that they did not have practical solutions for, women, for the women they met. Therefore, they came together as an ecumenical group, consulted with the ACLU, trained in direct action tactics, interviewed and vetted doctors who provided abortions, actually had women that would go in and, and act like they were pregnant and, and make sure that the doctors were okay. And they launched the clergy consultation service. To launch the program, they had an article on the front page of the New York Times, which listed 21 clergy willing to help with their names and phone numbers listed. They intentionally put the word abortion in the title of the article to help destigmatize and alleviate the shame. Not only that, they were fighting to ensure that it was affordable and accessible. They wanted to sacralize the choice for abortion. They unabashedly shared the good news of the work they were providing. They took out ads in the white pages and yellow pages using abortion services, so it was at the front page. The CCS started in 1966, and by 1972, they had 609 locations around North America. There were over 2,000 clergy involved, 40 states were activated, there were even some in Canada, and between a quarter and a half million women were helped. They reduced the cost of abortion from $500, between the range of $500 and $1,000, which at that time was around the 10,000 to 15,000 range, to $25 or $125. They ensured safe travel across state or country borders, because there was uh, travel between uh, the U.S. and Canada. And once Roe versus Wade was passed, they helped build the inf infrastructure of clinics across the country. The clergy involved felt it was their calling to ensure women had the choice and decide what they wanted to do with their bodies and to break down the barriers that would interfere with any choice they made. I'm happy to report that many of the clergy involved were Unitarian Universalists. In addition, the Unitarian Universalist Association in 1963 issued the first and most progressive statement on abortion. It stated that the Unitarian Universalist Association support enactment of a uniform statute making abortion legal if, one, there would be grave impairment of the physical or mental health of the mother, most agreed on that, 
Two, the child would be born with a serious physical or mental deficit. That was agreed upon. Three, pregnancy resulted from rape or incest. That was generally agreed upon. And four, there exists some other compelling reason, physical, psychological, mental, spiritual, or economic. That was not universal. That was the most progressive statement. It is this fourth line that calls for complete trust and affirmation in the decision being made by the woman involved. We have a history of removing shame, judgment, and stigma from a, rights, from a woman's right to choose. We have done this through declaring support publicly, creating networks of support, and placing trust in a woman's ability to make that decision. We are called by this resolution to continue the work of our history and step into public places to show our support, to partner with others doing this work, and to build trust and worth in women's voices and experiences. Another way we are called to work against any constraints to reproductive rights is to support the work of parenting and healthy growth of children in safe, sustainable, nurturing communities. We again have history in this congregation of ways we have done this well. In 2001, members of this congregation created the organization Up on Top to provide no-cost childcare options to families impacted by changes in the federal welfare program. This program still exists today and provides high-quality tuition-free after-school and summer pro programs to low-income families in San Francisco. You did this. You have this history. You have supported families. Our families and children in the San Francisco Bay Area are hurting right now. Many are still in shell shock from the effects of the pandemic. We have a huge mental health crisis happening amongst our young people. When my oldest child, who will be 24 in June, was a teenager, we were talking about the rising suicide rates in teens. Most recently, I read an article where the suicide rates are rising in children as young as eight years old. We have a problem. We have families struggling with food and housing insecurity, families that are facing the rising costs of childcare, families who are impacted by the recent bank closures. By fully supporting all choices, we are called not just to work and make birth control, abortion, adoption accessible, we are also called to take care of those who have decided to create families in whatever form they decide. This means finding ways to increase our budget, in our, for childcare and family events to support our parents and caregivers, increase within our congregation connections with all ages, to fight for food and housing security within our city, to create more accessible quality childcare, and to build supportive communities. And finally, to create opportunities for accessible mental health services and support our children and families. Let's not isolate our families, but find ways to create an inclusive community with them. One more way we can work against any constraints to reproductive rights is to advocate for equitable access to the full spectrum of comprehensive reproductive health care. I don't know if any of you have tried to work our health system and work with insurance lately. Yeah. 
If you have, then you know the barriers the insurance companies create to comprehensive care. You know the difficulty in trying to schedule an appointment with any specialist in a reasonable time frame. You know how, our over, how overcrowded our emergency rooms are. You know the countless hurdles just to gain access, not to even just see the, not to get into the door, just to get access to it. And I'm going to take a big leap here and say the vast majority of us in this room have the privilege of being able to access healthcare and insurance. And even with that privilege, the barriers are exhaustive. One way we can advocate for this equitable access is to take on the insurance companies and get the healthcare systems to reduce, reduce their complexity. That's a pretty big ask, and I'm not discounting our ability to do it. However, I wonder if there's some other ways to tackle this issue. In the previous congregation I served in Wenatchee, we had the privilege of a parish nurse. This was a retired nurse who provided all kinds of resources and support to our congregants, and the most valuable support she provided was being an advocate for our congregants. She helped them navigate the health and insurance system. She helped them determine where to find resources and how to ask questions to get results. And here at UUSF, we also have a great team of people in our lay chaplains of retired nurses and social workers who provide this advocacy for our congregants. I wonder, however, if there's an organization we can partner with in the local area that we can be trained to help provide this advocacy to those beyond our walls. The skills you need, as you know, if you've worked the healthcare system, is persistence and patience to keep asking the questions until you get the answers or get an appointment. And get an appointment. I think we can be pretty patient and persistent. I invite you to return to the story we had earlier of daughter Goose, who was faced with a difficult decision when Mr. Fox said he picked up a white and black stone only to pick up two black stones. Instead of being overwhelmed and stuck in trying to decide what to do, daughter Goose used strategic creativity to solve her problem. When we are faced by these daunting issues, we need to harness our strategic creativity. We strategically need to find ways to partner with others in this work and bolster their efforts. We need to remember who we're fighting for and the privilege we carry in being able to decide to fight or not. We need to remember the people of color and the barriers they face. We need to remember the families and children who need our support. We need to create room for the worth and dignity of all experiences and choices in reproductive freedom to be honored. I want to end by telling you of a legal case that is currently happening in the state of Missouri that involves two of our UU clergy, Reverend Molly Hosh Gordon and Reverend Krista Taves, along with 11 other Missouri clergy. They are talking, tackling the issue of access to abortion in a unique way. Typically, the legal cases involve individual people and their right. In this case, Black Men versus Missouri, the case is arguing that the current state ban on abortion violates the Missouri Establishment Clause, which guarantees the separation of church and state. They are stating their case in two ways. One, all clergy involved are saying their faith responds and requires women to have a choice in their reproductive rights. 
and two, the current ban is based on a faith belief of the current state governor and legislators, which is not theirs. If this case is won, it would overturn all bans in the state of Missouri. The clergy are being vocal about their faith and their affirmation of the choice and reproductive rights, and they are using the public square to their advantage. When faced with an impossible situation, they found creative and strategic ways to respond and partnered with others to get it done. Why are we talking about this on Mother's Day in 2023? Because all who have decided to become mothers, all who have made a choice to not be a mother, all who have decided to end a pregnancy, all who have died during pregnancy, all who have struggled to keep their children alive, all who participate in reproduction are affected by this. And we affirm in our principles, we are all interconnected in the interdependent web of life. This means we are all responsible in ensuring reproductive justice is a priority so we can continue to celebrate the spectrum of mothering in years to come. When you're deciding your vote for the resolution at the annual meeting on June 4th, I hope you remember what we're trying to achieve and vote to support it, not only in your yes, but also in your actions. May it be so. What the Constitution Means to Me is written by Heidi Schreck, who grew up in Wenatchee, Washington, a small town in central Washington state where my family and I moved just a couple years ago. The play was nominated for two Tony Awards and was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. Heidi starts the play by telling the audience as a 15-year-old girl, she traveled around the, the country debating the U.S. Constitution, and this is how she earned money to go attend college. She debated the Constitution in front of a room full of white men. In the setting in the play, it's the American Legion Hall in Wenatchee, Washington, and it's moderated by one of the Legionnaires. Once I sit down, I will become that Legionnaire, so imagine I'm a white male with a Legion Legionnaire. In the excerpt, and remember this is a play, so if there's any appropriate responses that come with a play, please make them. Please feel free to laugh, cheer, whatever you feel called to do. In the excerpt that you're about to hear, Heidi is addressing the Amendment 14, Clause 4, which states, Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law. Your time begins now. <sighs> Clause 4. It's one of the most miraculous in our entire Constitution. We stole it from the Magna Carta. It ensures that the government cannot lock you up, take your stuff, or kill you without a good reason. It is also the heart of the 1973 Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade, a case that is all about penumbras. With the help of Justice William O. Douglas's beautiful penumbra metaphor, Justice Harry Blackman used the Ninth Amendment to shine a light into the other amendments, and he found there, in the shadows of the Constitution, the right to privacy. And he argued that this gave a woman the right to decide what to do with her own body. Uh, well, <laughs> technically, thank you. 
Technically, he argued that a doctor and his patient have a right to privacy so that he can decide what to do with her body. <laughs> this was a very special moment for the Ninth and Fourteenth Amendments. They, uh, they kind of came together in a wonder twins powers activate kind of way to protect a woman's right to choose. Of course, depending on your view, gentlemen, you may consider this an unholy alliance. My view, which I do feel obligated to share, even if it endangers my scholarship money, is I support a woman's right to choose. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. I would also like to say it is a choice I would never make personally. <laughs> I said that. <laughs> no, I really said that in the contest. And then, uh, and then six years later, I got pregnant. So that was confusing. I didn't know what to do. I was 21. I just graduated college. Um, and I was back in Wenatchee living in my parents' basement. I was helping my dad paint houses for the summer because I was saving up money to move to Siberia to teach English for one million rubles a month. I decided to take a pregnancy test. I was just a couple days late on my period and I was just, I was praying it was one of those hysterical pregnancies like ladies in the soap operas get. <laughs> but I could not go to Planned Parenthood because my mom's best friend worked there and I couldn't go to a drugstore because someone might see me and tell my parents. So I, I looked in the phone book. I found this listing. It said, free pregnancy testing, quick, confidential. I'm going to keep going. I went downtown. I found this unmarked building. And I snuck in the back door. And the first thing I saw when I walked inside is that the walls were covered with pictures of fetuses. And there was this huge poster that said, adoption is a beautiful choice. And then the sign that said, birthright. I panicked. I, I wanted to run out the back door. But in case you can't tell by this point in the show, I was raised to be just psychotically polite. <laughs> So when Marcy, the receptionist, said, we're so glad you're here, I just smiled and said, me too. <laughs> and then she and I proceeded to have like a nice off. She took my hand. She said, Heidi, if you are pregnant, will this be good news or bad news? And I started to cry <laughs> loudly. But because I didn't want to let Marcy down, I said, good, really good news. And she said, yay. And even though she must have known I was lying, and then she hugged me. She hugged me, and I sobbed into her shoulder. And, uh, and she smelled so good. She smelled just like my grandma Betty, like like white shoulders perfume that has been left out in the sun way too long. <laughs> you might remember my town, it's a conservative. It was, it was an abortion-free zone. 
you had to drive three hours west to Seattle or five hours east to Spokane to get an abortion. I decided I wanted to go eight hours south to Eugene, Oregon, because there is a clinic there called the Feminist Women's Health Collective, run by lesbians, which is clearly the safest place to get an abortion. <laughs> and that is what I wanted. I wanted an abortion. I knew it was my right, I knew it was legal, and I knew it had been legal for most of the history of this country. Actually, because I'd been able to go to college, I knew abortion had only become a crime in the late 19th century, right before the government started forcibly sterilizing women of color and indigenous women. And I knew that when abortion became illegal, it didn't become rare, it only became deadly. I knew that, uh, that Gloria Steinem had had an abortion, and Billie Jean King, and Susan Sontag. I knew that Penny from Dirty Dancing had had an abortion. And I knew that when Jennifer Grey asked her dad, Jerry Orbach, to save Penny's life after her back alley abortion almost killed her, I knew she was asking a lot of her father because this was the 1960s and Jerry Orbach could have been arrested for getting anywhere near an abortion. And I knew that this is how we were supposed to understand that Jerry Orbach was a good man. And also how we knew that Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze's love was real. <laughs> that is everything that was going through my head while Marcy and I were hugging. I just, I didn't say any of that to her though. I didn't say anything. She gave me my positive pregnancy test. I said, thank you. And then I headed for the door. She followed me. She gave me this pamphlet that explained if I had an abortion, I would probably become suicidal and barren and maybe go to hell. <laughs> and then she tucked in the tag at the back of my dress and she said, I can't help myself, always a mother. I also didn't tell my mother what I was really doing. I have no idea why I didn't tell her I was pregnant, which is weird because my mom's a feminist. She's pro-choice, she, she marched for the Equal Rights Amendment and cried when it didn't pass. She even had like one of those like white lady feminist theater troops that does, I don't know, like puppet shows of the yellow wallpaper. But for some reason, I just, I couldn't tell her. In fact, I didn't tell anyone for 25 years until I started performing this show. And then all my friends came to the show and told me about their abortions, and their mothers came to the show and told me about their abortions, which, uh, which were so much more harrowing. Actually, I told one other person. I told the guy. I told Gene. And Gene, he was so chivalrous, he offered to pay for half of it. And uh, he even suggested that we drive down Highway 101 and camp on the beaches and make some kind of, kind of vacation out of it. Ew, right? Uh, thank you, thank you. That is how I felt. Look, I just want to say this. I don't have to say this, but I was on birth control when I got pregnant. I had been on the pill since I was 15 years old. My friend Renee and I snuck in the back door of Planned Parenthood before my mom's friend worked there. 
neither of us were having sex yet, but we just, you know, we wanted to be on birth control just in case, just in case we were in a hot tub and then the sperm swam up and attacked us. <sighs> or, you know, in case of a real attack. I remember it was such a nice day. We, we went to McDonald's and we took our first pills with chocolate shakes and I could kind of feel it working right away. You know, like, I felt very womanly. Some, something came alive inside of me. What I didn't know at the time is that birth control had only been legal for all women in this country for 15 years. I mean, I was 15, so I thought it had been legal since like the dawn of time, but no, no. In 1965, this incredible woman, Estelle Griswold, got herself arrested for giving out birth control to poor women at her Connecticut Planned Parenthood. She faced a year in prison, took her case all the way to the Supreme Court, and this, this is when William O. Douglas brought out his beautiful penumbra metaphor. This is when he said, one thing our Constitution surely guarantees is the right to privacy, and that this allows a woman to put in an IUD as long as she is married and as long as her husband says that it is okay. <laughs> this was such a scary moment for William O. Douglas. He, he really put himself on the line for us. <laughs> because the truth is, nobody understands the Ninth Amendment. Nobody except me at 15. Justice Scalia said he didn't even remember studying it in law school. Scalia said he couldn't tell you what the Ninth Amendment meant if his life depended on it, which I guess his didn't. <laughs> so they had to dig up this amendment nobody uses, nobody understands, because there was just no other way to deal with a female body. Because our bodies, our bodies had just been left out of this document from the beginning. They were just like, we don't know what to do with this, this body. That is my founder's impression. Thank you. So, <laughs> they dug up this amendment nobody uses because they wanted to make birth control legal. They wanted to because, well, because I found out that William O. Douglas, who was my hero when I was 15 years old, Justice William O. Douglas was 67 and he was having an affair with a 22-year-old college student. And, and it turns out that three other justices may have been having sex with young women as well. So I'm thinking, right, they, they need to find a way to get the birth control flowing. I would just, I would love to play a snippet of the actual Supreme Court argument because it is trenchant. It is fascinating. It's 1965. There will not be a woman on this court until Sandra Day O'Connor arrives in 1981. Here are nine men deciding the fate of birth control, four of whom may have been cheating on their wives. Uh, now that I've interrupted you, uh, you've told us that in Connecticut, the sale of uh, these devices is uh, not molested uh, because they're sold for the prevention of disease. Is this uh, true about all of these devices that are covered, uh, that uh, each of them has the uh, potential dual function of acting 
in a contraceptive capacity and as a prevention of disease, or only with respect to some of them? It's probably only true with respect to some, but some get by under the term uh, feminine hygiene, and uh, uh, others... I, I, I just don't know about, uh, but uh, uh, they are, they are uh, all sold in the Connecticut uh, drugstores on one theory or another. Is there anything in the record to, <clears throat> to indicate uh, uh, <clears throat> the uh, extent of the birth rate in Connecticut vis-a-vis the states that don't have such uh, laws? It's uh, like four hours of that. Um, Birth control became legal for single women in this country in 1972, which is the year after my mom got pregnant with me. This is what I was thinking about when my mom drove me to Seattle to meet Jean to go down for an abortion. I was thinking about the fact that she was my age when she had me, that she wanted to become an actor and a writer and move to New York City which is, of course, what I'm going to do, but I don't know that yet. And as soon as I have that thought, I'm overcome by this horrible wave of nausea. I ask her to pull the car over, and I open the door, and I puke on the side of the road. And when I sit back up, I can tell that she knows. And I'm just, I'm waiting for her to tell me that it's okay, that that it's my body, and like she taught me, this is my decision. But when I look at my mom, she's got this wild look in her eyes, and then she starts hyperventilating, and she's basically having some kind of panic attack, and all of a sudden, she shouts, you better not be pregnant, and I shout, I'm not pregnant! (laughs) 